We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to Leviticus chapter 25. You have Bibles in front of you, and we'll be in that text this morning, nearing the end of our series on the book of Leviticus, entitled God With Us. And uh, as we approach this chapter, we are still in the realm of dealing with time and rhythms, only instead of annual, weekly, or even daily rhythms, as we've seen in chapters 23 and 24, as we come to chapter 25, we encounter two rhythms— that are still rooted in the Sabbath principle, that is of uh, one day in, or one day in seven or one year in seven, uh, that extend over years. One of them is the Sabbath year in verses one through seven. It's a year of rest for the land every seventh year. And then the second is the year of Jubilee, which is, um, happens every 50 years. The last half of the chapter from verses 24 forward are dealing then with laws of redemption for land or people which are mixed in with regulations about the Jubilee as well. So these every seven year and every 50 year rhythms reveal to us the kind of society that God intends for his people, for his holy people. One that limits the exploitation of others for personal gain one that expresses grace and generosity toward those who have fallen on hard times, one that prioritizes the household and access to the means of economic production. For the sake of time, we are going to focus this morning on the year of Jubilee and the legislation around that, though it has similarities to the Sabbath year in verses 1 through 7. And what I'd like for us to do is spend some time just understanding the legislation and where it's, what it's rooted in in Leviticus 25. And then secondly, to think about its fulfillment in Jesus, as we know the, the book of Leviticus and all that it teaches is fulfilled in Jesus and what God does in Jesus. And then its application for our lives and our mission as the people of God today, because this ancient legislation does actually inform for us what we are called to as the people of God today. So first, the institution of Jubilee. And as we consider this, I want to acknowledge my appreciation for the work of Christopher Wright, the Old Testament scholar. He's written extensively on Jubilee in several of his books, and I find his work to be quite helpful, and it will inform some of what I'm teaching here this morning. The year of Jubilee, the 50th year. So let's look at verses 8 and 9 in our text. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year. So what we've had is a, a Sabbath of, of weeks, of years and weeks, uh, seven years times seven is 49, and then we get this special jubilee year in the 50th year. And then what happens in verse 10 is we hear about the key dimensions of what goes on in the Jubilee. So let's look at verse 10. As I started, you shall, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you when, you when each of you shall return to his property 
and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a, a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Two primary emphases of this institution in ancient Israel, which come out in verse 10. The first is release or liberty. You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. This is likely release from bondage, probably indentured servitude brought on by economic hardship, so financial debts. And you are released in the year of Jubilee from both the bondage, the indentured servitude, and from the debts which required you to enter in to that indentured servitude. Uh, a piece of trivia. I know Philadelphia is in the news for some, some reason for today. Um, but it is known for a great landmark in American history, for the Liberty Bell. And the Liberty Bell was uh, forged in the same foundry in London as the bell in our steeple, just to put the connection there. Ours was about 70 years later, but the Whitechapel foundry in London. And it was uh, commissioned in 1751 by the Pennsylvania Assembly to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the original Constitution of Pennsylvania, William Penn's 1701 Charter of Privileges. And the Pennsylvania Assembly, knowing their Bible, asked the foundry to inscribe on the Liberty Bell, which if you can go see it in Philadelphia, you'll see this there, uh, a section of Leviticus 25, verse 10. On the Liberty Bell, in the King James, of course, it reads, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Actually, the Liberty Bell became most famous during the abolition movement of the mid-19th century as a symbol of abolition and bringing freedom to all who live in our land. Very appropriate and fitting, this theme of release and of liberty, which we see here as a key theme of Jubilee, obviously brings itself into even our nation and history. The second principle, alongside liberty and release in verse 10, is return or restoration. You shall return, it says in verse 10, <clears throat> to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. So there is a returning or a restoration to the land and to your clan or family, your people, that's going on here. Obviously, the economic hardship that people would encounter over time, which could lead to selling of the land uh, or even selling of oneself into service, would cause families and clans to be splintered and fractured over the years. So every 50 years in this legislation, a key part of it was release from bondage, but also return and restoration to the conditions of flourishing where you began, on your family's property and land. And you would be restored to your family unit, your household, your father's house. Now this Jubilee legislation, this institution in ancient Israel, is built on two economic principles, just to throw out quickly. The first was the principle of equitable distribution. What we mean is that God's apportioning out of the promised land to his people was to be done in a manner that was equitable, distributed equitably across the tribes and clans and households. And those were the three levels of, think of concentric circles. Tribes was the largest grouping of Israelites. Then you had your clan, which was a smaller grouping. And then at the smallest level, you had households, 
which were likely generations, three or four generations, living together, an extended family, living together under one household or on one set of property, working the land and being a place of growth and deepening for all who lived upon that land. God's principle, and we see this in Numbers 26, as well as in Joshua 13 through 21, God's principle was to distribute his land to his people equitably, according to size and need. So that principle underlies the legislation in Leviticus 25. And it's also a, count, a contrast to what would have existed in Canaan prior to Israel entering into Canaan. In pre-Israelite Canaan, uh, the standard practice would be for the king and a few nobles to own all the land, and the greater part of the population would be resident on the land as tax-paying tenants, no ownership. And so what God sets up in his system is so countercultural to the system of the day in the ancient Near East, in that God says, I want my people to be the owners of the land. I want them to have the land as their possession, as a part of his expression of his desire for flourishing. Uh, so we see something there of a countercultural move in this principle of equitable distribution. The second principle is the inalienability of the land. What God had originally assigned to households and clans and tribes was actually not meant to be sold or given away or parceled out, but it was meant to stay in the ownership of that family on into perpetuity. Of course, hard times in reality necessitated people selling off portions of their land, as we know even of themselves, uh, because they fell into hard times. But the Jubilee laws were meant to express God's original design, that his people would be rightfully, that would, they would have rightful claim to a portion of his land. So those two economic principles undergird the legislation in Leviticus 25. All of the legislation here is actually undergirded even further by a theological, some theological truths that we find in verse 23. If you look with me at verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. The two principles here that come clearly at the middle of this chapter are one, that the land is God's. God owns the land. And therefore, he dictates how this land is to be apportioned and treated. We need to remember that in an agrarian society, land was the way or means of generating wealth and production. God says, this land is mine. And so I then set the terms of equitable distribution and inalienability. That's the first principle there, is God's land. The land is mine. The second, you see at the end of the verse, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Strangers and sojourners are really one expression in the Hebrew, often used to describe those who were resident aliens in and among Israel as they lived in the promised land, or resident laborers would be a way of describing them. They had no stake in the land for themselves, but they hired themselves out to households and were actually then protected and cared for and provided for in those households of Israel as they served um, the, the, the owners of the land, the Israelites. And basically what God is saying here is, uh, that's who you are to me, Israel. Uh, I am the landlord. You are the tenants on my land. And God invited them, in the words of Chris Wright, into a relationship of protected dependency. They were invited into this, to be dependent upon the Lord, as they were his people. Later in this text, in Leviticus 25, God's people are described as the slaves or servants of God. Basically, I bought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from slavery and made you my own. 
And that makes us think, doesn't it, of how Paul often begins his letters in the New Testament to say that uh, he introduces himself, Paul, a slave or a servant of Christ. When we are won over by the love and grace of God, we actually lose the uh, ability to be author or uh, to be an authority over our own lives. And we hand that over to the God who has rescued and redeemed us. And that principle is at play here. These are God's people on God's land. And that's what enables this legislation then to be given to his people. Those theological principles undergird the whole of the chapter. From, cha from verse 25 on, we deal with laws around redemption. Uh, redeeming people or land. And these are laws that are given in increasing situations of hardship. I'm not going to take the time for us to go through them, but they kind of descend in difficulty and hardship. And the idea here is there be an opportunity for those within your clan or your tribe to redeem the land that you had to sell so that it could stay where it belonged in that clan or tribe or household. Uh, and that if that didn't work, then it's interspersed with laws or with the regulations around Jubilee. If no one did that in that 50 years, then at the 50-year mark, that land would be restored. Similarly, for people, when they got into really hard places and they had to sell all of their land, then the last thing that they could do was to sell their own labor. And they would become indentured servants to other Israelites, and even by the end of the chapter, to, to non-Israelites who were present in their midst. Similarly, there was a right of redemption for their kins, kinsmen, their, the people in their clan or tribe, to, to redeem them. And that's what, that's what gets detailed at the end of this chapter. And these laws of, of redemption uh, in the second half of the chapter, could be, um, uh, they could be exercised at any time. There was no sort of set time for them. So what you can imagine happens in ancient Israel is, as some within a particular clan or tribe or household begin to fall on times of hardship, other households in that clan are doing quite well, and they serve as the redeemer for some within their clan or their tribe or their household. So over time, as this happens again and again, you have some families with pretty large portfolios and other families, even within the kinsman kind of group, now suddenly finding themselves as indentured servants. The laws of redemption actually help the tribe or the clan, these larger groups of Israel, to stay together. It keeps the land there, keeps the people there, but it still presents a kind of in, uh, uh, a distribution of the wealth that's very out of whack from what God originally designed. The laws of Jubilee cut a bit deeper then than the laws about redemption, because what the Jubilee laws suggest is that every 50 years, there would be a reset to God's original intention for the flourishing of his people. And people would return, as we've seen, they would return to their land, and they would return to their families. Imagine that day, I mean, when that, the horn blew uh, to begin the 50th year, and they were released from debts, released from bondage, released from being in places that weren't really their homes, and they would come back in the joy of being found together with your family again, your household again. The Jubilee laws, the, the redemption laws really uh, rehabilitate or keep the tribe and clan, the Jubilee laws at their fundamental level restore the household, that most narrow of Israel's associations, by bringing people back. And this was critical because the household was central to the formation of every Israelite in their identity and rootedness, in their covenant relationship with God, their growth and development and formation as a people. So the Jubilee laws are intended to restore conditions for flourishing once again with the distribution of access to the wealth generation of land and the, re the restoration socially of the family unit. Obviously, this economic institution of Jubilee is rooted in the heart of God. One of the key things that you read the Old Testament to remember is that the heart of the lawgiver is revealed 
in his laws. And we see the heart of God revealed in this legislation in Leviticus 25, his care for the poor and for those who fall on hard times. We see his desire that all would have access to resources that would enable them to thrive. We see his concern for the treatment of all, even perhaps especially those who are more easily exploited because of their economic or social position. We see that over and over again. One example in verse 43, you should not rule over him, that is your poor brother who has become your bonded servant. You should not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. We see his love for and protection of the household as a primary unit of flourishing. So we see the heart of God expressed in these realities of release and return and restoration. And for Israel to live into this legislation, which by all accounts is quite radical, required a deep faith, a deep faith and connection to their covenant king. And we are reminded of that throughout Leviticus 25. We're reminded of God's sovereignty, that he is sovereign over time, and that he dictates how time should be spent and inhabited. We're reminded of God's providence. There was a question in the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year when they would forgo sowing and reaping, how are we going to eat? And the call of the text is that God will provide abundantly in the year before the land goes into its rest. And so they were reminded to depend upon the providence of God to ensure a blessing that would sustain and support his people. They were reminded in Leviticus 25 of God's rescue of them in Egypt. The Exodus is referred to several times in this chapter. And they're reminded, of course, of God's cleansing, of his dealing with their sin. When does Jubilee begin? On the 10th day of the seventh month, which is known as the Day of Atonement. There's a connection there. They would need to know the depth of their cleansing in order to be able to live by faith into this radical picture of God's society, of his holy people together. So to live into this does require a deep faith. Chris Wright notes, quote, to apply the Jubilee model then requires that people obey the sovereignty of God, trust the providence of God, know the story of the redeeming action of God, experience personally the sacrificial atonement provided by God, practice God's justice, and put their hope in God's promise for the future. To live into this society required God's people to walk not by sight, but by faith, and to entrust themselves to his providential in sovereign care. Now I want to move next in our second section uh, in remaining time to think about hope and fulfillment. Let me do address those of you who are out there going, okay, well, did they actually do this? Um, and the reality is actually we don't know. We don't have textual evidence in the Old Testament of their having been uh, practicing the legislation of Jubilee. But I should say we also don't have a lot of evidence that they practiced the Day of Atonement, and we believe that they did. So there's not a lot of value in that argument from silence. But it's quite likely that as the society of Israel got more and more complex and people got more and more separated from the land of their ancestors that this did fall into lack of practice and that's why we don't see it. But nonetheless, it remains uh, embedded in the people of God and their ethos and their hope and their understanding of God himself. And that's where I want us to turn. We think about the, the literal jubilee, this economic institution of flourishing and restoration, actually began to be baked into Israel's hope for God's one-day intervention in the future. Terms of jubilee became part of their deep desire as they longed for God to return and make all things new and right. And that hope is, is seen in the biblical prophets as they take up these ideas from jubilee of release and restoration and put them into their prophetic words about the future hope of Israel. We see this in Isaiah 35, for example, 
when we read that the redeemed shall walk there, that is, on the way of holiness, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, there's a key word, and come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. Or in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty. That's the same word we find in Leviticus 25.10. Liberty to the captives, or release to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What would be the year of the Lord's favor any more than the year of Jubilee? So most scholars understand that to be an allusion to Jubilee and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And if you were listening to our New Testament reading, you know where this is going because it is not an accident that as we get to the New Testament, that when Jesus at the beginning and the inauguration of his ministry walks into a, Sabbath, into a synagogue on the Sabbath in Nazareth, that he takes the scroll and he finds the place where Isaiah 61 is written in the scroll and he sits down as was custom in the synagogue in those days and he begins to read from the scroll of Isaiah 61. These very words that I've just read for you were coming off the lips of Jesus the Messiah and then he finishes the reading and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Which is to say that what God does in Christ is the great fulfillment of God's intention and heart encoded in the ancient legislation of Jubilee. It is the release from our greatest debt. It is true redemption from our deepest enslavement. It is, in fact, restoration to our God and to one another in our God that comes about. The release from evil and sin and death that we proclaim as good news week after week in this community because of God's word and because of all that God did in Christ. This is the greatest possible restoration and return we could ever know. It is a restoration to God our maker, who is, as we saw last week in some ways, um, that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is our home, as our hymn, opening hymn today, reminded us, oh God, our eternal home. We are brought back to the place of our belonging that we long for. We are returned. We return to connection and community with the people that we were created to be in fellowship with in creation because of the work of the reconciling work of God in Christ at the cross. And we are redeemed and restored to conditions of flourishing by the Spirit of God in the gospel. At one level, when we consider Leviticus 25 and its fulfillment, the Jubilee fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we literally should just stop and marvel and rejoice at the wonder of God's great work of redemption in our lives. It is a wondrous thing that the heart of God is expressed for those who had fallen on hard times for those like us who had sold themselves into slavery to sin, for those who were estranged from our deep home. And God expresses that heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps this morning, all you need to hear today is the reality of God's great rescue, restoration, redemption, and release in the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't force that rescue and redemption upon us by any means, but he invites every single one of us who were created in his image to come back home, to be released from our bondage to sin, evil, and death, and to be restored to communion with him, the God of life, and to know deep life in this. 
Romans 10, 9 says, For everyone who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. And that salvation of the New Testament is nothing other than the fulfillment of the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee of release and restoration. And this invitation is offered to you and to me. And I would urge you and call you all to come and receive that, in, that, that rest and release and restoration that God provides in the gospel of Jesus. We see this response to the salvation and restoration when Peter and John healed this lame man. Remember at the temple gate in Acts chapter 3, this man who had been lame from before birth, we learn later that he was over 40 years old. And Peter and John say, look, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we're given there in Acts 3 a beautiful picture of the restoration and release from bondage that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God in Christ can bring. And this man is found leaping and jumping and praising God and giving glory to him. We are to respond in like manner to the true fulfillment of Jubilee in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to continue as I try to bring this to a close and say we cannot, if we are faithful interpreters of the biblical word, only interpret the Jubilee in a spiritual manner. Because this is a great model God gives us of restoration, which has social and economic implications that remain the concern of God's people and that inform our approach to the societies in which we live, that reveal God's heart for justice, which his people are called to express. That is to say this, even as we take up that priority of evangelization that is given to us in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel from our risen King to make disciples of all nations, even as we proclaim the news about Jesus Christ as his res and his rescue of the downtrodden and those in bondage from sin, evil, and death, and we give thanks to God for this, we do so as those who are as the people of this same God, the God of Leviticus, called to continue to care about the economic and social realities that affect the poor and disadvantaged around us. This is especially true, I should say, among the family of fellow believers who are part of this new kingdom society. But it is also true and can spill over into how we adv advocate for and care for those who live in our societies at large. Think, think with me for a moment. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray? He gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer, which has this phrase in it that has tones of jubilee. The phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, of course, that word is, in, is rightly understood to be expansive in its meaning. But its origin, in terms of its semantic range, its origin, its bullseye, is in the financial realm. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jubilee was about releasing people from their financial burdens and debts. Jesus chose this word intentionally as he taught us how to pray in his kingdom. There are jubilee themes here. Consider how the early church in Acts 2 and 4 cared for the poor in their midst, some of them selling proceeds of the selling the land that they had so that they could take the proceeds and give them to the apostles and then care for the poor in their midst. They prioritized 
the widows who were among them by setting up a distribution system to care for those who were in need in Acts chapter 6. And they had disagreements about how that should be done. And so they gave attention to this because it mattered to the people of God that the society that they were beginning to build and model was reflective of the heart of God that we see in the Jubilee legislation. Even though in the New Testament we rightly prioritize this call to evangelize, this does not abrogate the heart of God for justice, for impacting social and economic conditions in our world. First, of course, in our kingdom society as the people of God, but also spilling over into the society around us. The earliest Christians in the first couple of centuries were great models to us in this, in that they not only, we read from one of their uh, antagonistic opponents, they not only cared for their own poor, he says, but for ours as well. This was the Roman Emperor Julian saying this about the Christians, that they were so passionate about caring for the poor that they overflowed in their care for those within their own kingdom society and began to care for those in the Greco-Roman pagan world around them and therefore put to shame the governing authorities of their day because of how they cared for those around them. Informed by Jubilee principles, I want to suggest to you that our mission to the world would include at least two things. First, a concern for equitable access to resources. Now, I know we can get in a lot of hot water. I'm not going to give you policy here. That's not the job of a, of a pastor. But I want to at least acknowledge this principle that was there at the heart of God's original distribution of the promised land to his people. And the restoration of the legislation of Jubilee was to restore access to people so that they could live lives of dignity, in meaning and sustenance and provision for themselves and their families. Access is, res is, is restricted in all kinds of ways, not least of which through injustice, through enslavement of people. We think about the great heroes of our faith in some ways in more of the modern era of William Wilberforce and his work to abolish the slave trade throughout the realm of England. We think of the work of Martin Luther King Jr. to address matters of racial injustice in our own nation because he was driven by his Christian convictions. We think about the work of, say, Habitat for Humanity, started by a Christian man whose deep desire was to express tangible acts of love to those within his community, and he left a life of extreme wealth as a lawyer and, and entered into this pathway of forging a way ahead for an organization that was intending to give access to people to the means. Obviously, home ownership is maybe the closest thing we have to land ownership in an agrarian culture in relation to economic production and security. And so that, that came out of a Christian desire and impetus and impulse. Or think about the work of Gary Haugen and the international justice mission that he founded in 1984 with several others, after he, he writes in his book, after he had been formed deeply by observing Christians in places of deep suffering, in apartheid in South Africa, in the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 as well, as well as among guerrilla warfare in the Philippines, Haugen cites all of these places as places he had been and learned from the Christians who were there as they engaged these matters of injustice because of their commitment to the King, Jesus. And so he forms IJM with others, and their mission is, quote, to protect people in poverty from violence by rescuing victims, bringing criminals to justice, restoring survivors to safety and strength, and helping local law enforcement build a safe future that lasts. That kind of work of justice that Haugen and his colleagues uh, have grown into, obviously a well-known now institution, IJM is, would affect the people whose lives were like Kumar, who was a young five-year-old boy in India when his father suddenly died and his mother tragically disowned him. And he took refuge under the shelter of a distant uncle and was there for a couple of years. And then a, uh, a, an owner of a, of a brick kiln unjustly 
uh, because of a family debt that occurred in Kumar's extended family, unjustly uh, trapped Kumar at the age of seven in a life of, of daily backbreaking, brick-making labor. And Kumar found himself with other children, other women, and other men that this brick kiln owner was unjustly and illegally holding in, in, in labor that would start at 6.30 in the morning and run to the, to the early hours of the evening. At one point when one of the child laborers that this man was holding unjustly escaped, he caught him, brought him back, and then publicly beat him in front of all of his other workers. And this story, Haugen writes, could be repeated millions of times. There are people living without access. Here's what Kumar said about his own situation. He says, I wanted to study. I wanted my parents. I wanted to play. At times, I would think of those things. But he had no access, no hope, and no future until the people of God intervened. Are we working to bring access to those who are made in the image of God? The work of these very well-known examples and the work of many others less known in the world in the people of God's family who seek to live lives of care and concern for neighbors around them in situations of disadvantage is a continuation of the principles that are legislated for God's people in Jubilee in Leviticus 25. Even to some degree, I would say that our ministry to our neighbors who experience homelessness is giving them access at least to a warm meal and a loving touch in a way that expresses the heart of God for the disadvantaged. So it'll be a, a commitment to, to, to providing access. And then a second way that Jubilee would impact our ongoing mission is including an advocacy for the health of families and households because they are, these are so central to our sense of identity and flourishing. Everyone in the founding of this nation of America knew that our union would never be preserved by laws or by the Constitution alone, but that it depended upon the character and moral forming institution of the family and the church and other civic institutions that would address the needs to develop and grow a people who would have character and courage. And they knew this because they knew the Bible and how important this is in the scriptures. And that importance is clear, so clear, in the legislation around Jubilee. Advocating for and working toward the health of families is critical for health in society, in God's economy. And that kind of work is necessary among the people of God today, even in our culture. Families form us for good or ill, and we all know that, in a way that nothing else can. Release and restoration is at the heart of God. And this heart is expressed in our mission as the people of that same God today in light of the fulfillment of the Jubilee in Jesus our Lord, both in our action and in our evangelism. And both of these are integral to our mission. Here's how the great theologian of the 20th century, the evangelical theologian Carl F. Henry, spoke about this as he reflected on the evangelicals of the 18th and 19th centuries. He said their evangelical movement was spiritually and morally vital because it strove for justice and also invited humanity to regeneration, forgiveness, and power for righteousness. If the church preaches only divine forgiveness and does not affirm justice, she implied that God treats immorality and sin lightly. If the church proclaims only justice, we shall all die in unforgiven sin and without the Spirit's empowerment for righteousness. We should be equally troubled that we lag in championing justice and in fulfilling our evangelistic mandate. These go together, hand in hand. Thanks be to God for his great jubilee 
for the revelation of his heart that he cares for the downtrodden and that he longs for conditions of flourishing to be restored. Thanks be to God for how he shows us this in coming into our situation, into our bondage, and taking upon himself the reality of our punishment and penalty and enslavement so that we might be set free through the death and resurrection of his son. And thanks be to God that he gives us now the privilege of being his forgiven people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus, who are living into the fulfillment of Jubilee, that we now have the privilege, empowered by that spirit, to go out and be a people who reflect the light of God's release and restoration to the people of our world, of our culture, of our society, of our neighborhoods, in the name of Jesus, our King. That is our great privilege as the people of God. We are a people of Jubilee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love expressed in Jesus. And we thank you for the reminder, even long ago in Leviticus 25, of your heart for release and restoration and redemption from bondage, for how you fulfilled that in your Son, and how you call us to be agents of that, as we work in our world for justice, as we proclaim the reality of the gospel that alone sets people free from the deepest bondage, we pray that you would empower us to live in this manner for your glory, honor, and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.